your impact is really on the game. Like it's bigger than what the stat sheet shows, but you're still so attached to the stat sheet and it's telling you whether you play good or not. And I think that gets in our way sometimes too, looking at the numbers, thinking the numbers prove your value when sometimes it doesn't. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is both personally and professionally to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe, leave a review, and make sure to follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks. This is a special episode that we recorded live with Andre Iguodala at our inaugural Grit Summit a few weeks ago at the Chase Center. Andre is a four-time NBA champion for our home team, Golden State Warriors, NBA Finals MVP, All-Star, All-Defensive First Team and Second Team, All-Rookie First Team, and even an Olympic gold medalist. He's also the co-host of Point Forward, his new podcast. We started the interview by playing a clip of him hitting the game-winning shot against the Oklahoma City Thunder. That was a really good game. We were up two. Westbrook hits a three to put him up one because we gave up a three. We were not supposed to give up a three. It's like cardinal sins, and we had one at that moment, so we had to figure it out. Was the play called for you? The play was called for me, but I remember the play was supposed to be ran a different route, but the defense shifted, and so your worlds, we had to pivot to something else. When the play gets called for you, are you like, oh, shit, like I got to take this shot? Or or do you think of anything? Like, is everything silent in your brain? Are you thinking about who you're going to run the screen around? Like, what is going through your head when, I guess it was Mark Jackson calls the play for Mm -hmm. you in the corner? Well, I mean, I've had a few, and you learn over time when things slow down, that's the best zone to be in. And so that particular play, I was supposed to go cut right to catch the ball, but he jumped in front of me and it was in slow motion. So I went left and just shielded him off. And I think it was Clay through a great pass. It just led me to right where I wanted to be. And I had practiced that shot so many times from the post, um, out of the post up position. So I was just accustomed to doing it. But once you play basketball for so long and you studied it, you learn pretty much everything you need to know about the game, then you're ready for all those moments. And so I always say you should feel nervous going into games and you should feel jitters, like you should feel something. But when the pressure comes on, I think that's when I'm most locked in and in tune. And so I actually like those moments more than anything. I mean, it's what's the worst that can happen? You miss. I think we put too much pressure on ourselves to fail instead of just embracing the journey, those moments. And they happen like they're supposed to. If it's supposed to go in, it goes in. If it's not supposed to go in, it doesn't. So I just always think about it that way. You don't play the tape forward in your head, meaning if I miss this shot, then we're down 2-1. we got to go back to Oklahoma City. That narrative does not start running in your head before the shot goes off? Uh, no. It's funny. I think about scenarios not on the court. I daydream about those moments. I had one yesterday. I was dreaming about daydreaming about a play. What were you daydreaming about? This play was, uh, well, I haven't been playing, so I'm replaying 
myself playing well when I get back. That's exactly where I just came from. I was downstairs working out and I played a couple of games and it was very similar. You're really just setting yourself up for success. And it's just, uh, what do they call a law of attraction? And you're just constantly thinking of ways that you can be valuable or ways you can help your team win. And so I'm always, it's just always in my mind. I think it's just habit of just thinking about the game all my life. When you're practicing the shot that everybody just saw in your head, is that the way that you're thinking about it? You know, when I was a kid playing basketball in my driveway, I would tell myself that I was going to hit a game-winning shot somewhere, somewhere, somewhere. Is that how you think when you're practicing? Well, practicing, I'm trying to make it as hard as possible. And so when I get in the game, it's easy. So that shot was like really easy. Well, it's not easy, but based upon the work that I put in, the prep that I put in, that shot was easy. I can remember being in China, I don't know, 2008, 2009, around that time. And that shot right there, I would shoot it like 50 times a day because that's the, probably the hardest shot for a right-handed basketball player to shoot the ball turning over their left shoulder. Kobe Bryant was one of the best at it. Uh, Paul Pierce was really good at it. Obviously, Michael Jordan was one of the best at it. That's one of the hardest shots you can shoot as a right-hander fading away. And so every single day, I would practice that shot 50 times that way. And then I would practice it 50 times, making it a different way, but still getting that way. And so over time, it just becomes second nature. When that shot was taken, that was your first season with the Warriors. Mm-hmm. I think the We Believe team mantra had kind of already come into fruition at that point. That was also Mark Jackson's last year as the coach of the Warriors, mm-hmm. right? Is that yes. right? You came, I was reading, partially because of Mark Jackson. Mm-hmm. Maybe two-part question, which I hate, but two-part question. Part one, why did you come for Coach Jackson? And part two, what did you think about when they replaced him with Steve Curry, lost your guy? Well, why don't we like two-part questions? I have a podcast, and I hate asking two-part questions, but is it that difficult? Yeah, well, now you have to answer like two. I could just ask one question, then you answer, then I could ask another question, then you answer. I mean, they, yeah. flow, they flow together, though. Yeah, yeah, um, Sorry, y'all, but uh, <laughs> learn it. Well, Mark, I think when you do something for so long, days become mundane. It can become too much of a routine. It can become like the same thing over and over. It can lose its luster, especially when there's a business to it. And everything's about, you know, profits, you know, business, business, business. And the game like basketball is best as the essence of itself with the rules to make the game show the skill set of everybody on the court to its highest level. And I think sometimes we throw rules into the game that throws it off a little bit and it's not its true self. And if you play an NBA or any professional sport for too long, you start losing the love of it a little bit. That was my 10th year in the NBA, mm-hmm. which is a long time. I think the average years are like three and, a, three and a half, four years is the average career. And so all I wanted to do was get somewhere where I just truly enjoy going to work every day. That's my only objective. And so playing against different teams, you get a feel for who's enjoying playing and who's not enjoying playing, you know, who's playing to win, who doesn't care about winning. You learn everything about the opponent. And in turn, that gives you the picture or the full scope of that organization or the culture of that team. So playing against the Warriors uh, regular season before and in the playoffs the year before in Denver, I can see that there was true joy. And those guys really like playing basketball. They like playing for one another. And I could see that it came from their coach. And that was it. I just wanted to go somewhere where I just like playing basketball again. Like every morning I wake up, I want to be excited to go to work. And I saw that with Mark and that was the case. On the flip side, it was interesting because obviously when, you know, when he was fired, you don't know what to think. 
you're trying to figure out what's next. Signed a four-year deal. That was only after year one, so I got three more years. And uh, it was one of the coaches that was the number one guy that didn't get hired, but he was the first choice. If he would have been hired, I don't think I'd be sitting right here right now. Steve Kerr was hired. There was some optimism because we went to the same university, played for Coach Olsen, the late Lute Olsen, uh, Hall of Fame coach. So we had the same basketball principles. Obviously, he made some changes within the lineup when he got here, and I was the sacrificial lamb for lack of The odd man out? Odd man out. But I understood the purpose of Meaning it. Meaning he benched you. He put you on the, he took Correct. off the starting, starting right, squad. Right. And in the basketball world, I mean, in the business world, it's like in a demotion. You Is know? that how it felt? Yeah, it's how it felt because I was playing really well. But when he explained why, it was really hard to argue. And so when you make a decision like that and, and you have, you know, the data, the information to back it up, it was really hard to go against it. Because like I said before, we both went to the University of Arizona decades apart. I'm not that old. But <laughs> we were taught the same basketball principles. And so we spoke the same language. I mean, through the whole training camp, we were on the same page every day. You know, he's teaching the guys certain things or he's, his certain verbiage he has. The other guys aren't picking up on it as fast. I'm getting it right away. You know, his first time explaining the shell drill, I know exactly what to do. I brought these basketball nets, not for shooting, but for passing. You know, who practices passing, who practices dribbling and footwork the way he does. We did all those things in college, so I just picked up on it right away. And so I think that really helped that decision that he made. It helped me really take that and embrace it. And not, most of the time, there's so many egos in our sports worlds that guys are going to ask for a trade or they don't want to be there anymore. They, they want out. There was thoughts of it because that's normal in our world. You feel like you're treated unfairly, you just want to go somewhere else. But I had a really good conversation with my agent. Steve made sense. And uh, we just see where this thing takes us and took us to a championship. When you were a rookie... AI, Allen Iverson, one of my favorite players ever, gave you advice to stop reading the newspaper. Why? Well, he had been so beaten up and bruised and battered from journalists in Philadelphia for so many years. I think he was just preparing me for what was to come. And I'm 20 years old, still a kid. That was my daily routine to read the newspaper. Just growing up in Springfield, Illinois, my mother had us reading the State Journal Register every single day. And started with the sports section and then so on and so forth. Just always knowing your surroundings and being aware of the, your, the neighborhood that you live in. Like it was just something that was instilled in us at a young age, which was so different from the other kids I was raised or grew up around. And so fast forward to Philly, I used to just read the paper every day. You know, not necessarily the sports section, but I just always read the paper. He was telling me stop reading the paper because back then, we don't live in that world now, but you know, we have a very smart, diverse group here today. We remember those days where you know, the press really controlled the narrative and the perception of, you know, either a company or individuals. And it, it was happening in the sports world as well. So he had been, you know, your words can get misquoted. You know, someone can pay the narrative review about you. And in turn, it can affect your psyche going into play. And I think he was protecting me from that. And as soon as he left, it happened right away where I understood exactly what he was saying. You know, so I started to be the target, being the face of the franchise and uh, you understand it because some days you just go to work mad and it's like why am I mad at work or oh, I read the paper today and yeah. so just making sure that you control what goes in up here and keeping those things at bay to make sure you're in the right mind. Part of the reason that I ask is because you started a podcast point forward mm -hmm. your teammate Draymond has started a podcast it struck me that AI gave you that advice almost 20 years ago right. and now it feels to me like there's more 
of a trend mm -hmm. for players like you. I wonder if it's out of fear for saying the wrong thing to the wrong outlets or out of empowerment to be able to say whatever the hell you want on your own platform, on your own distribution channels. I wonder how you think about that and maybe it's part of the catalyst for starting your own podcast to be able to tell your own story? Yeah, well, it's a bigger picture to it. You know, there's this overarching goal where, you know, you have assets and then you can create other things on top of those assets to create more value to it. And so the news broke today that my business partner and I took a majority stake in the largest uh, NFL agency, talent agency. And so when you look at where media is going, sports has become a media property. You look at a lot of the TV deals that are happening. You look at Apple, you look at uh, Google with YouTube, you look at Amazon, with Amazon Prime, all these streaming services. And then the cable bundles just become the sports bundle. That's what's keeping cable alive. Sports has become very valuable and you want to be able to position yourself to be of strength and of just building on top of those things. So with the agency, you know, you have the media and then there's a production company that I have within it as well. Uh, we're rolling out. We have the Big Ten podcast. We all we got all but two, one or two Big Ten teams uh, where we do their podcast locally with their former players on the basketball side. And we're looking to grow that out. So um, you look at a lot of these uh, media conglomerates and how they started, you're just trying to wedge your way in there and I think there's no better way than to be authentic as a former athlete understanding the spaces and still got to be cautious of what you say but I think it's more or less your voice being heard and giving the people an understanding of what you're doing you know your purpose and then at the same time I think the value in podcasts is, is really a learning experience because that's how I take it you know all in is one of my favorite podcasts business breakdowns acquired professor G uh, professor Galloway there's so many different folks out there who I uh, tap in with just to keep myself abreast on what's going on in the, the worlds that, that I enjoy being in. And it's the same with sports. People who are in sports or culture, music, uh, the business of sports, I, I feel like Point Four is a place they can go to to learn as well. Yeah, it makes sense. You mentioned a couple of times basketball as work. I wonder what your relationship with is. Ariana was just talking about joy as it relates to work. Mm -hmm. Part of me struggles because... It's a game, right? Like, I wonder, maybe the question that I have is, would you do this for free? Would you play for free? Basketball, I would play for free. I wouldn't play in the NBA for free. It's a big difference. And so I think, you know, speaking on that earlier, you kind of lose your love for it. It's not love for the game you lose love for. I think you sometimes you see the NBA and, you know, you understand the trauma that comes with it. You know, on a podcast, we have a section where we speak on where your successes have caused you pain or caused you trauma. It's not all good making, you know, so much money as a public figure. People know how much money you make coming from a background where we don't have the financial acumen or the financial education to be able to uh, properly deal with the money. And everyone around us is in poverty. And when you make it, you're respected. Kevin Durant spoke. So this is one of my favorite parallels. It's like when you make it, it's like you're the Lion King and you're just, you're lifted up. Like you're here to save us all. And then you have the responsibility of a whole town to go back and you have to save them. And obviously that's impossible to do, but then there's stress and trauma put on you there. And so there's a disconnect when you go back home and that's bothering you, or you try to take care of everyone. And now you looked at as, you know, that sad tale as an athlete going bankrupt. And so there's so many things that go on with us as athletes that people don't get an opportunity to truly understand because there's two sides. It's those that understand and they just say, just leave and you can't just leave. And it's those that don't understand where they're just saying, well, if it was me, well, if it was you, you would have, 
use your skill set to get yourself out of the situation you're in. So you're just always entangled in those different worlds. Kobe used to talk about how when he would get on the court, it was his only sanctuary in mm-hmm. life. Like it was the only place where he felt like, ironically, his mind could quiet. Is that how you feel? Well, now I'm babysitting a little bit more. So it's not as quiet. I got Kaminga. Oh, like the rookies. Yeah. Who <laughs> <laughs> I love to death. That's my guy. He's just right next to me. But you know what's funny about him is that... Uh, it's like a sanctuary when I am around him. I truly forget about all my problems because I take on all his and we just kind of tag team it. But he keeps a smile on my face. And so it's become one of those relationships where I wanted to kick him in his ass every day to now it's just big hugs. So yes, the bus rides, the plane rides, those are all like those places where you can kind of shut off. Like you can't, this is Wi-Fi in the air now, but no one can call you on a plane. So it's like a sanctuary in itself. But on the court, definitely, when I'm working out by myself, and I think the trainers see that. And so they think I'm never going to retire because I, I'm truly just, I push everything away and I'm really tapped into what I'm doing when I'm on a court. And uh, it looks good sometimes. It's just when other people are involved, you get beat up and the knees start to ache. But yeah. The most recent trophies in the corner there, championship trophy, you've got four of them now. Which one felt the best? Is, the, is the obvious answer the first one? Like, is that? Yeah, the first one. The first one was really fun because I remember when the buzzer went off, I had absolutely no idea what to do. <laughs> One teammate was trying to hug me, and I, like, pushed him off of me. And looking back, I'm like, why would I do that? But you just, I had no idea what to do. And then uh, I'm laughing with Sean Livingston. We've been playing basketball with one another since we were 10 years old. He's from Peoria, Illinois, I'm from Springfield, and they used to beat up on us. But we, we had a crew of guys that could hang with them once I got a little bit older. Uh, so it was always that rivalry. So for us to make it to this level and win a championship at the, together, and been battling since 10 years old, was... I think that those moments you appreciate and you value more so than, you know, what money can buy. It's it's those things like that that you really reflect upon and, you know, you smile about. I remember when I say we as if I'm part of the team because I feel so invested in it. But am I allowed to say we as a sure. Okay, cool. Yeah, I remember when we were in our – it feels a little stupid standing next to you and saying we. But anyway, I remember when we were in the playoff runs – and freaking LeBron would come into town. Mm-hmm. And I'd literally just be like, oh my God, please, Iggy, like, please lock this guy down. First of all, how daunting of a task was it to be the guy that has to lock down LeBron basically every year? Like, that was the task. Not to put words in your mouth, but if we could successfully slow him down, mm-hmm. we had a pretty dang good chance at winning the game. I just wonder, did your preparation change when you're facing LeBron James in the finals? And that's pretty much your assignment year in and year out? Yeah, that's funny. When you just asked that, just brought back memories. Yeah, when I would go against him, I would put on a little bit more weight. And it wouldn't be a lot. It might be like four or five pounds. But to me, it felt like a big difference. And so I would hit the weights a little bit harder. And then I would eat a little bit more. I had to be a little bit more bulky because I'm 6'6", 220. He's 6'9", 270. You know, that's 50 pounds. (laughs) And he's just gifted. You know what I mean? But what's funny about that whole, all those matchups is that I never quite got a chance to really appreciate his game. And uh, I was, it was funny, I was able to tell him that last year at Draymond's wedding. You're never really allowed to truly appreciate the greatness of someone because... You're sharing the court together. Right, you're just in competition. So I would never, I would never say to myself, like, he's the best player in the NBA or ever. I would never say that. My mindset was all right, he's my toughest opponent. And so now it just raises my antennas and then I just got to be locked in. So you're getting extra reps on the court, you know his strengths, you know his weaknesses. 
you know, you're just really just heightening your senses to get into battle, knowing that you got to play your best to win. But it's funny you say that. Don't you feel that way about Steph, especially now this year? You haven't played yet, have you? Yes. Yes. Yeah, yes, you haven't played. I have a few. I had a, I've had a few. Couple games. games couple couple games. games. Yes. But you're mostly on the sideline right now, nursing an injury. Mm-hmm. Don't you feel like now that you're not sharing the court with Steph, you're watching some level of greatness that you can actually appreciate and really enjoy? Yeah, in my year and eight months with Miami, I got a chance to enjoy it. Even now, I'm not playing. I'm still like focused on, you know, like Kaminga. Moody or Dante DiVincenzo, like I'm focused on the bench, you know, Luna and I are in constant communication. What can we do better? What are we doing good? Like what's the vibes of the team? Who's in a good mood? Who's in a bad mood? And so your, your mind is constantly working. So even when I'm watching the game, like Steph can be shooting, but I'm watching the guy over here to make sure he's doing his job. So I see the ball go in, but I didn't see where it came from. I'm, so I still can't see it. But that year and nine months in Miami, I got a chance to enjoy it. I remember one night in New York, the Dallas game in Dallas and he went crazy. I mean, he shot a shot from like half court with like 14 seconds on the shot clock in the middle of like the third quarter. And I was jumping out of my seat and I kind of screamed. I'm like, oh, I haven't had a chance to do this in a long time. (laughs) I can genuinely be excited for him, although he's not on my team because we were so close and you know we accomplished so much together. So it was a good feeling to have. I think most of this room, I would say, are not underdogs. These are folks that have crushed their careers, are in the preeminent technology companies of our time. It reminds me a little bit of the Warriors. You've had so many good runs at it. You have all these incredible Hall of Famers on the team. How do you stay motivated and hungry knowing that you have accomplished so much that Mm -hmm. you want to keep going? That's a very broad question, so I'll let you kind of take that where you want to go. But I wonder, as a team, how do you stay after it? Yeah, well, I mean, your core guys, it's kind of sad to say, but I think it's a disease. It's just kind of sick that we all have where we just can't stop. You get addicted to success, I think, because even the things I'm doing off the court, I tackle them the same way that I approach, you know, work on the court. Draymond, Steph, Clay, Katie, you know, uh, Sean Livingston, David West, all those guys. We all have this thing about us where it isn't just winning, it's about dominating. And we're at the point now where we're just trying to cement our names in history. How many teams can say they did what we did in you know, that span of time? There's only but so many dynasties. I mean, you got the Bulls, obviously, the Lakers. San Antonio never won back-to-back, ever. The Lakers a few times, Boston. You know, like five teams throughout the history, and then now you include us. But to even win four with the talent level of basketball today is has been uh, an incredible ride. And I think it's just, it's just something that's in you, you know, something you can't explain. You talk about analytics, some things just don't show up on analytics. You know, you can't compute someone's heart or someone's IQ. And I think those are the things that have been able to set us apart and enabled us to have, you know, the dominant run that we've had so far. One of the paradoxes that's always struck me with the Warriors is this idea that they seem to be having the most fun of any team in the NBA. Almost people have said in an arrogant way, right? Like when Steph throws the ball up and then just starts running the other direction. Obviously, I'm a Warriors fan, so I think it's the coolest thing ever. But Mm -hmm. I wonder this obsessiveness with dominance seems a little bit at odds with this idea of joy. Does Coach Kerr talk about it? Do the players talk about it? How do you hold both of those things together? Well, we have uh, our four pillars, and one of them is joy. 
And so when you walk through that door to come to work, push everything else to a side, like you said, your sanctuary, but our sanctuary is joy. And that's just Coach Kerr's, one of his monikers in terms of like, just, I want you to come to work and be as happy as you can doing what you love doing, just forgetting everything else. And when you have a superstar like Steph, who, you know, he trains that way, he plays that way, you know, he gets a little bit too loose with that left-hand pass, but, but that's just joy. And why not have joy? We talk about grit, right? The book Grit, Perseverance and Passion. Was that Duckworth who wrote that book? And that was one of the books I had from my uh, book club. And just reading that, it's a blessing to find your true talent. And you have to go get perseverance. Like, you have to go get that. You have to be able to fight through things, you know. And it's really hard. It's hard on both ends of the spectrum. So, you know, those that have really no resources, you kind of get stuck there. You know, I don't have the resources to get to where I want to go. I'll just lay here in this world that I live in. And on the other end, it's the same way. You know, I have a 15-year-old son who has all the skill set in the world. And it's really hard to tell somebody, go shoot shots at 5 a.m. and then do it again at 1 and then do it again at 7 p.m. And who has a, I think his bedroom's like 1,000 square feet. Just his bedroom alone. <laughs> so it's on both ends of the spectrum. So I'm saying, like, it's really... It's really rare that you can find passion and perseverance and put them together. So, you know, when you have that, it goes back to your last question. You know, why do we keep striving for more? It's just like we, we know we have this unique thing and we want it to last as long as possible. And I think that's a part of your journey and a part of your duty once you've mastered something is I think the greatest thing to give back to our maker is to make most of what he gave us, he or she. Going back to your point about your son, like I, I do kind of agree. It's hard to coach that person into waking up at five. One of the things that I remember after I pulled over on the side of the freeway when Kevin Durant got signed to the Warriors because I was screaming for joy was the reports that started coming out about the way that he would practice. Mm -hmm. Like this dude is so good. Mm -hmm. Some people say he's the best ever. Mm -hmm. And he would practice, I mean, you tell me, but the reports that were coming out, I remember being like, oh my God, this guy's the hardest practicing guy on the team. Is that true? Yeah, it was one of the... I would invite people to come watch us practice, and I would say, don't watch us practice. Just wait till after practice and watch 20 minutes of this guy, and then just come tell me what you think. And my god brother came to me in tears. He's in basketball. He's a coach. I've been, uh, you know, I changed his diaper, and his like he had water in his eyes. Like that was the most beautiful thing I've ever witnessed in my life. And all he does is watch basketball. You know, to see a guy of that stature to have that ability and that work ethic. Uh, which is incredible. And I think a part of getting the most out of yourself is just never being satisfied. There's a great documentary on Chris Jackson. Mahmoud Abdurraouf got banned from the league. Uh, he would pray during the anthem. We sh you should all watch it for a learning experience. It's on Showtime. But he had Tourette's syndrome, and he said his Tourette's syndrome was a gift and a curse. He would be outside shooting, and his Tourette's wouldn't allow him to leave until he made 10 perfect shots in a row. And so if it was like off by a minuscule, he would start at zero and he could never get to 10 because his Tourette's just, you know, it's just like disease of cleaning up. But in turn, his disease led him to being, he was Steph before Steph, just no one would know because of his circumstances in the NBA. But KD is the same, except for his, his diseases, he loves basketball. So his shot went in the exact same time. He was like uh, Chat GPT. He was like AI before AI, right? It was it was incredible to see. 
And for you, you were what, 15 seasons in the league at that point? 14? Yes. Mm-hmm. And you probably thought you're a pretty good basketball player. You had pretty good habits. Was there some reinvigoration that happened amongst you or the team, maybe just for you, where you're like, oh shit, this guy's the next level. Did that motivate you? Did that push you seeing that? Not necessarily motivating, but more intentional. When I came into the league, it was a different type of league. So it wasn't necessarily about jump shooting for me, but seeing Steph, he's one of those guys, and seeing KD, just watching them work out and watching them shoot, I would pay attention to like fine details in their shot and I would incorporate some of those things and I've become a better shooter since being around him. This is a tough question, so take it or leave it, but do you remember, like which one do you feel more in your stomach? The season that you went 73 and nine and lost the championship or let's say your first trophy? The question is more around like, do you feel the losses more or do you remember the wins more? Well, I hate losing. But losing would take me out of character a little bit. It's funny. I'm reading this daily stoic book. So uh, what's his name? Marcus Aurelius, mm-hmm. the philosopher. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's daily quotes from him. And one of them was, you know, frustration and acting out of character and just keeping yourselves from getting to those emotions. Losing would take me there. So losses now, I try to say they're just learning experiences as opposed to taking it home, wife feeling it, kids feeling it, and it dragging on for a day or two. But before, definitely. So at the, in the moment, 73 and 9 hurt because I didn't want to chase 73. You didn't? I didn't want to chase it because I knew we weren't ready to win it all. Like, I knew we could get to the finals, but chasing it, it took our mind off what was important. It's like, it's a long season. And sometimes, like I said, losses can be lessons, so you know, 71 and whatever the other side of that is, but we didn't break the record. You know, 71 and uh, 11. Winning the championship is a lot better than 73 and nine with no championship. So, and I knew, because I know Scotty a little bit, we played some golf. I knew if we didn't win it. Scotty Pippen. Yeah, I knew if we didn't win it, it wouldn't count. So I knew that the whole time. I was hating that we were chasing it as opposed to, let's just set our sights on, winning the championship because we got out of character at the end winning some of those games we got wild but we won and we were happy with the win as opposed to like no we got to fix some things meaning you can't get street cred from the the generation before you if you didn't get that trophy correct only scotty and michael so i don't know them that well but i know them well enough and getting respect from michael jordan is uh let me not get in trouble because i call steph closest thing to jesus christ i didn't mean it that way (laughs) It was actually uh, paying homage to Jesus Christ. But getting the respect from Michael Jordan is the same as getting the most out of your talent, paying the respects back to your maker. Similar, not the same. But, like, that's who I would want approval from. And I knew if we didn't win it, he would do one of these. And we we wouldn't be able to be mentioned as one of the best or be able to beat them if we didn't. You get compared to Scotty a fair bit, Mm -hmm. don't you? Yeah, I'm from Illinois. But like your game too. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I grew up watching him. Yeah. Uh, but Penny Hardaway was who I modeled my game after at a young age. I was more like Scotty, so I just kind of embraced that at a young age, and I watched him closely. What about you was like Scotty? When you say that, well, our physique is very similar. Thin frames with you know we're very cut up, and we look like the strongest men on earth. We're not that strong. Dude, you're jacked on yeah. TV. You we're look just absolutely yeah. Jacked. I'm just skinny, and, I'm, and I'm, my father's from Nigeria, so I just look like a specimen. Uh, <laughs> I'm not that strong, but Scotty's shaped similarly, 
And defensively, I caused some havoc on the court, and Scotty was always one of the best defenders in the league. The athleticism, the IQ. Uh, he played point guard within the triangle system, and then I played point guard uh, majority of my life growing up. And so there were just a lot of similarities there. You're kind of notorious for being a student of the game. You study the past, you study your opponents. Could you maybe break down for us, what does your preparation process look like? As detailed as you're willing to go, maybe heading into a final series or into maybe a playoff game, can you go into what does prepping for that really look like? How seriously do you take it? Yeah, so the league's gotten so much different now. There's not as much prep as it used to be. There's less prep now. There's less prep now because the game's more spread out. There's not as much like little nuances. There's not great gamesmanship. It's just a lot of a lot of folks trying to recreate what we did, not understanding like you have to have the proper personnel. There has to be a team camaraderie, character. You know, all those things play into the equation. And uh, professional sports are very ego driven, and so now we fall into this place where we're just shooting a lot of threes and not understanding like you can do other things well to get to the three-pointer as opposed to just starting with the three-pointer. You can still play inside out. Now we're playing outside, outside. There's no outside in or any of that. It's just everybody's chucking up threes. But coming into the league, like in the playoffs, we get these thick booklets. Like you would have 50 pages on the team you're going up against. And it would be every play they ran all year, every player's percentages, stats, their favorite plays. So you had to learn all those things. And so coming into the league, I was just happy to be here. And I just thought, all right, this is what you got to do. And so I would read everything about every player in the league going up against the matchups. And then in the summer, I would take like the top 10 players who I wanted to be like, and I would get a DVD and a like five minute clip, six minute clip of each one of those players. So I had like an hour DVD of the 10 guys I enjoyed playing the most. And I would watch it every single day. And then that next year, I would have to guard these guys and I would have success guarding them because I studied them. But at the same time, I was taking some of their offensive arsenal and putting it into my arsenal. And so it was helping me get better as an offensive player because I was more so strengths were on the defensive side early on. So just a whole lot of film. I think just being a student of the game, just enjoying it. Like I keep saying law of attraction. If you consume yourself with so much of one thing, you're naturally going to become it and start, you know, become second nature. And so like I said before about those shots, it's like I did it over and over. I watched the great players do it over and over. It became like breathing. When you go into an offseason, do you think about intentionally adding something to your game? Well, I have this theory. Once you're 28, you are who you are. You know, you're a starter, you're a superstar, you're a shooter, you're a ball handler. Now, you're always going to become a better shooter just because you just get your reps. But you become, you are who you are around 28. And so up until 28, like I was trying to add. I would go into every summer thinking this is what I'm going to add. Like I would map out my season. I would map out my summer. And now I understand goal setting. You know, you tell you, what do you want to be when you grow up? It's like, oh, you know, you want to do this. You're not taking it serious. But as, you, as I got older, okay, what do I want to do this year? What do I want to accomplish? And then how am I going to accomplish that? And then you're setting those attentions every single day. So if you had a day where my first 10 minutes, man, I start off as good. I had a really good trainers around me. What are we trying to accomplish? What's our ultimate goal? This is it. All right, so we got to get the work in. So I really had bad days because I knew the, at the end of the day, this is where I wanted to be and this is the work I had to put in. Your book is called The Sixth Man. Why did you call it that? The book really has nothing to do with The Sixth Man, but there are some parallels around it. 
But at the same time, you just learn how the media and how the machine works. You know, why not embrace the biggest point of my career happening from a decision that was made for me by someone else coming off the bench, having to make sacrifices. But at the end of the day, I stuck with it. And going back, my life has kind of been like from a young age, I was really smart, but I could play basketball. Those things were kind of conflicting in the neighborhood I grew up in. It was no smart guys around, but at the same time in the classroom, there was rarely a uh, African-American who was smart or even in the classroom that played sports. And so there was all these worlds that I was growing up living in. And you look at the basketball world, starting and not starting are conflicting as well. And so it was just a lot of parallels and being a six man to how I grew up and then kind of how I approached life and being prepared for the unexpected and making the most of it. People attribute a lot of the Warriors' success, both in practice on the court, but also culturally, to you swallowing your pride and coming off the bench as the sixth man. I was thinking, like, what was that first game like? Having been the star in Philly after AI left, coming to the Warriors, like you're Andre Iguodala. What is your internal monologue that first game where you're coming off the bench? I'm super curious. Well... Or at that point, it was, had you already put it, it, it aside? It was really hard. No, it was really hard because it's different. You know, imagine being great at something and still being great at it, but told we need you to take a lesser role in doing something else that you've never seen before. And so having to adjust to that. So it took me like 90 games, 95 games, honestly. I was always trying to force it in the game, but I couldn't quite force it because it was my job to just let it come naturally. Like Steve had this thing, he kept saying, let it flow, find the flow. So it was my job to help others do well. And I was used to getting mine and helping others find their way. And I couldn't do that. And so it was like playing my left hand. And so it took me until basically the finals to really get comfortable. So I remember that whole year, like I come in at halftime and I really would be confused as to who I was, you know, like, am I good anymore? You know, like the doubt start creeping in a little bit from time to time. But I knew I was still good because I was working out every day. I knew I was helping my teammates be better. And, you know, I would have like four points, six rebounds, six assists. Your impact is really on the game. Like it's bigger than what the stat sheet shows, but you're still so attached to the stat sheet. And it's telling you whether you play good or not. And I think that gets in our way sometimes too, looking at the numbers, thinking the numbers prove your value when sometimes it doesn't. Did something switch for you after 90 games? Like, what, was there something that... No, nothing switched, which is, which is the crazy part about it. Nothing changed. This is when I learned that the playoffs show real talent and real IQ. So now we're finding out who's been putting the work in, who's been working overtime, who's a student of the game, who has a high IQ, who's locked in, who loves the game. That's what the playoffs show. And so that's when I started to separate myself and... Nothing changed, but the ball is going to come to me when it's supposed to. Like, Sean and I will always laugh about it, Sean Livingston. We would have to get certain guys the ball so they wouldn't go rogue during the game. So, all right, let's get this guy a shot. Cause he's like, get him in the flow. Well, this guy hadn't shot in two possessions, which isn't that many. So, if we get him a shot, he won't be mad, and it won't carry over to the next game, to the next game, to the next game. Like, keeping that person locked in. Just make sure we take care of him. It's like a little brother who's just whining about not a piece of candy. And it's like, yeah. all right, you can have my candy. I won't have candy today. 
And um, Sean knows who's that. He knows who that guy is. It's a couple. It was always it was always one or two of those guys on every team. But we would be sacrificing for them. And it goes back to not reading the paper. You reading the paper. Andre Iguodala hasn't scored in three games. It's like I could have had a lot of points, but if somebody that keeps getting all my points, <laughs> you know what I mean. So, but in the playoffs. The ball flows how it's supposed to flow. It goes where it's supposed to go and always ends up where it's supposed to be. And if you're ready, you'll have success. And that's what happens in the playoffs. So that's why I don't mind sacrificing and my numbers may look less. It even hurts me in free agency because I don't look as good, don't look as valuable to the team because my numbers don't show it. But then in the playoffs come, everybody's like, oh, he steps up his game in the playoffs. It's like, no, it's just the flow is more natural in the playoffs. Does your prep change playoffs to a regular season or is it exactly the same? Do you do anything to up the level of intensity? I think about this crowd. There is a level of intensity that comes with the ends of months, weeks, and quarters on the regular and years, on the regular cadence of a business. I wonder, do you do anything to ratchet up the focus when it's crunch time or do you actually do the opposite and try and keep it super consistent? I add some time. So I'll come in the gym. I get there a little earlier, stay a little later. I'll come at night. And then I'll cut off some things. So I'll uh, shed some things from the load. I'll shut some things down on the business side. I won't be as hustling and bustling as normal earlier nights. So you're going to bed a little bit earlier. So it's a little bit more focused. What was the lowest point in your career? Lowest point in my career? Oh, I played in Philly for eight years. It's a very, it was a good experience for me because it helped me grow up really fast. But there were some moments, I take some responsibility for it just being an NBA player you know you're falling into some of the stereotypes of being an NBA player falling in some of his traps they're everywhere which it may seem like it's easy to avoid but they're everywhere and sometimes you can lose who you are and if you don't catch yourself fast enough you can end up like one of those sad stories and not necessarily from a financial standpoint because I never had that problem but in terms of you know guys go through midlife crisis at 30 nowadays you know what I mean? Just kind of trying to identify who they are, who their friends are. I've been fortunate to come across some really good people. So I never, never really got there, but I've had some low points. This is your last season? 99.999% sure. All right. I say that all the time, but yeah. pretty sure, yeah. Like, uh, what made you pretty sure? Because you still got game. Yeah, it hurts. It hurts different. And what do you mean? You recover different. So something that would take me a week to come back from, it takes like three weeks now or a month. And it's like, what is going on? And my son's getting older and uh, he has two years left of high school after this year. Uh, he windmill dunked last week, which is surprising. And he's taller than me now. And so now I think I got to lock in with him. He has a great opportunity to do something special on or off the court. He doesn't have to play in the NBA, but I think sports and basketball can give you some life skills and I uh, just want to help him tap into that. Knowing this is the last year, do you do anything to soak it in differently? Go to any favorite restaurants when you're on the road, visit different places? Is there any joy that comes, maybe that's extra special this time around, knowing that this is 99.9% the last rodeo? I thought I was going to do that, but losing takes a toll on you. We've lost more than I would like. So I forgot about that part, and i just really been locked in. But then I've, been, I've just been busy all the way around. A lot of folks in this room are who I would like to have some success similar to. And so I'm constantly chasing. And I think that's uh, something I need to work on in terms of just enjoying the moment. We had yoga up here yesterday. And then sometimes we go outside and we just let the sun sit on us. 
and just kind of gaze out. I think I need to do that more often. I haven't played golf at all, but it also tells me I've been working. So I don't know. I think that's a good thing to work hard. I got to find a balance. I will one day, 10 years from now. I doubt it. When you came here, I've heard you quoted as part of the impetus for coming to the Warriors was actually to get more ingratiated into the startup, the technology type of ecosystem. Maybe just broadly speaking, what lived up to your expectations there? Like you found your way into, Mm -hmm. I think, some pretty cool spots. What lived up to what you thought from the outside looking in and what is completely different from kind of the technology and startup world? Just Silicon Valley in itself, it definitely lived up to it in terms of deal flow, you have foundational talent that's trickling right up into the jobs. You know, you got Stanford, uh, you got Cal, every other school in between, your technical schools. So you see that. And even in the great, what do you call it, the, during the COVID migration where everyone's working from home moving, you still find people trickling back their way back here. So that's stood the test of time. And that's been so true with the great relationships I've been able to create here. Uh, but at the same time, they keep you at bay. They don't want you to get too close. So Billionaire Boys Club is, uh, I think that's a real thing. And I think you see that in the numbers in terms of how our CEOs, how our founders are invested in. You have a lot of underfunded communities in terms of what that startup world looks like, uh, investment dollars, where it goes. Mm -hmm. And so I think that is a part of, you know, who I am, my branding and what I represent to try to put a little dent in that. You know, I worked with Comcast Ventures and headed the Catalyst Fund, and we were investing in, uh, like I say, underfunded communities, so people of color, uh, African-American, Latinx, and women founders. And, and what you find is you're placing bets, but you got to spread your bets. And if you don't have enough bets to spread, then you're really not going to put that dent that you want to in the world. And so trying to create that pipeline, which uh, we've been able to identify with uh, our first fund with the VC that I founded with my partner, Rudy Klein Thomas, uh, Mastery. You know, everything we stand for is rep- represented in our thesis and what we're trying to do with these companies. Super cool. I think I only have time for a couple more. I'm curious, if you were building a team and everyone's stat line looked the same on paper and the only thing that you could evaluate are qualities and characteristics of the people on the team, mm-hmm. What are some of the top things, and let's avoid the obvious like grit answer maybe, right. but what are some top qualities that either you feel like you have in yourself, you want in others, you've seen in greatness? What are some of the things that are the top of the list and maybe explain why? I think the first thing is uh, competitiveness. And like I said, like, I think it's good for everyone to go through a team sport because you got to rely on other people. Or you have to be able to take constructive criticism you got to learn different personalities and how to work with different people. You know, you got to learn everything about every person you work with, you know, what makes them go. You know, I always say I can identify if I like a person just by playing around around the golf with them. You know, just four hours with somebody. You learn what makes them mad. You learn what makes them happy. You learn how they re- respond to something that goes good. You learn how they respond when something goes bad. And so, like, that competitive nature. Do they actually care about winning? And I think the willingness to learn and being curious is very important. Like I was a curious kid. Like I was always, I was very sneaky, but I was always wanting to learn like something new and different. And I think in that tech world, you got to be able to learn about just different worlds. You know, one week is is healthcare. The next week it's, you know, uh, marketplaces. And now everybody's on AI right now. You know, I just read, uh, it was like a $70 million series A round. It was just a lawyer AI thing now. So now lawyers are being... (laughs) Targeted, they might be out of jobs. I'm just 
type in my problem and be my own lawyer. You know what I mean? So just different areas that may be disrupted at any given moment, you got to be able to pivot or be able to adjust to the new trends to be able to stay alive, especially in the environment we're, having, we're in right now. What's the most memorable game of your career? Most memorable game? I don't know. I played a lot of games. It's funny. All the finals games are like a blur. They go by so fast. Like you just black out. You have no idea what happened. Yeah, you black out. Like you don't even hit a crowd half the time. When I do these things, I black out. I have no <laughs> idea what's going on. Uh, my first game was memorable. You always remember your first game. It was against Boston. I'm a young rookie. I'm starting. No one expected that. No one even expected me to shoot and make my first shot. Get a couple offensive rebounds. Like I had a really good game. I was active. I was all over the place. Uh, I guarded one of my favorite players of all time, Paul Pierce. Like, I had fun. My rookie year was probably the most fun I ever, play, ever had playing basketball because every day it was, there was no pressure. I just could go out there and just play. I was expected to make mistakes, and if I didn't make mistakes, I was looked at as, like, this rookie's incredible. And then coming from where I came from, I didn't make too many mistakes. So, you know, I was being praised every day. But I was having so much fun because I was just a 20-year-old kid doing what I love to do. If something went wrong, they blamed Alan Iverson. <laughs> so I, it, was just fun. it was just fun, like joking around on the plane. Like all I did was have fun and laugh my rookie year. Dude, I appreciate you doing this. I think I got to wrap up. Absolutely incredible. For those listening, Point Forward is your podcast. Yes. I always conclude these things the same way. What does the word grit mean to you? Uh, where passion and perseverance meet. I stole that from the book I read, but it's ingrained in my mind now. So, Andre Iguodala. That's it. Thanks for tuning in. Feel free to check out more than 100 past interviews that we've done and more amazing guests to come every Monday morning. This episode was edited by Eric Johnson from Lightning Pod. Thank you to all of my listeners for tuning in for an hour plus every week. 